we have been moving through 1 Timothy. And, uh, and we have Timothy mapped out um, all the way through, um, almost through the end of September, I believe is what it comes down to, because we're just taking 1 Timothy. We're really moving slowly. Now, why 1 Timothy? Just as a reminder, because this matters for what we're about to do. 1 Timothy is kind of like the church manual. Um, if you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's just being very clear that this is what the, the church of God should look like. This is how things should be done. And the hard thing is, is that as we read it, we have to wrestle with, is that what our churches really look like or not? There is a whole lot of grace. There is a, an abundance of grace and freedom of expression um, in what a church should look like and where it should meet and how big it should be and how big it should not be. But there are some things that it's just very clear. And it's like, well, while there's the opportunity to do that, should we do that or should we not? And we go back to God's word. John Piper, um, very familiar name probably to all of you, um, he was asked one time, and I was very eager, like as a church planner, um, that you can write in questions, and there's an, an Ask Pastor John podcast and stuff like that, and somebody just simply said, is it okay, are house churches legitimate, or how big is too big for a church? Like, it was kind of a, a two-sided question. I was like, oh, I want to know what Piper says because Piper, he's got this mega church. And so he's probably all about like churches meeting in these buildings. And he said, both are absolutely wonderful and fine. Both can absolutely honor the Lord. So if there's a church that's meeting in a house or a series of churches that's meeting in a house or one that's gathering in a large scope, that's fine as long as they're biblically sound and biblically healthy. And I thought, man, that's just refreshing to hear because here's a pastor of a of a big church, a mega church. He's got this enormous platform. Like he's got the opportunity to speak. And what I heard as a church planner is, it's okay as long as you're planting as, as God called you to plant. And so it was wonderful. Keep in mind that as Paul is writing to Timothy, he's left Timothy in charge of the church at Ephesus, which were gathering in homes and smaller venues. And so this letter would be passed around, or even if they came together, then their regular worship would actually be scattered to different locations. This idea of gathering in, in like thousands and thousands and thousands is not evil. Don't mishear me. We just have to ask, is it the most healthy way to do it? I think that kind of comes down to the pastor. It comes down to resting on what God has called them to do. It comes into accountability and what's being preached and how is it being uh, executed. So all those things are in the back of my mind as I'm reading Timothy. Regardless of where we gather, cross life, wherever we gather, whether it's in a cafeteria, which by the way, why the cafeteria? It's convenient, it's cool, and it's summer, and it also frees up our, our budget so that we can give more to missions and do more um, life like that. And so we kind of like a, a venue like this, to be quite honest. Have we had opportunity for others? Sure. But this one keeps a low overhead for us. And, I mean, it works. I'm just a simple guy. If it works, it works. That said, we are always praying, Lord, if you want us to be somewhere else, if you have a place for us, then just show us. Like, we will gladly. It would be nice to not set up and take down. And I know those benches, I've been told, get really uncomfortable by the end. I feel fine, by the way, just so you all know. All right, so we need First Timothy so that wherever it is we gather, however small or big we ever are, no matter if it's in Fort Smith or Fayetteville or Maine, wherever it is, God's Word has said, here's what is good and acceptable and healthy for a church. And then there's a lot of grace too. We do not have it all figured out. We are able to worship as Cross Life in a way and able to do ministry in a way that other churches cannot. And you know what's humbling? They can do church and meet in a way and do ministry in a way that we cannot and that's actually good. We can reach different people with different needs in different ways and yet come alongside one another in the gospel. So as we do it, we just need to all make sure that we have the primary things as the primary things. And so we're in 1 Timothy. Here we go. Chapter 2. First of all, Paul writes to Timothy, and I'm in the ESV version. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good 
and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Paul writes, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, he writes, I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. That's our passage for today. And we're just going to begin to move through it so that we can see what we or what God is, is speaking to us today. Pray with me one more time. Lord God, your word open before us. Lord, I pray that you stop my mouth and my words whenever I go too far. And Lord, that you make me sensitive to what your spirit has revealed to us in Scripture. And Lord, for all that I cannot do as a man uh, speaking, Lord, I, I can't change hearts. Lord, would you change our hearts? Lord, would you make us sensitive to what it is that you're calling us to do? Lord, help me and Lord, help us to be faithful hearers and doers of the word. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Amen. All right, so so we're just going to move through it. What does the passage say? It says this. First of all, he writes, First of all, then, I urge the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. Y'all, what are we to do? Pray. Like that's what the first thing he says is we're to pray. Now, there's this idea. If I were reading this in my quiet time, he says, first of all, then I might be tempted to think, OK, he's about to say first and then second and then third. He never actually says second and third. And finally, what he does is he says, first of all, the idea there is of utmost importance, the most primary thing. That's what Paul's trying to get across. Now, if you look back. Through chapter one, I'm not going to recap it all, but it seems like he already kind of hit a first all. Like first of all, he talked about how there should we should be mindful of false teachers, how we need to be mindful of the gospel. We need to um, understand that that there's a way that the church should operate. Like those, he's talked about all those, but now he gets to his main point. And so, whenever he says first of all, he really is saying, "Oh, church of utmost importance," and you and I need to hear that. Of utmost importance. First of all, cross life. You know what we're supposed to do? Pray. Like it's that simple. I mean, it it shouldn't surprise us, but I think in our church culture, it it probably should. And I'm not trying to be critical at all, but we as a church culture, we really have drifted far past prayer. It just becomes something you do in a moment. It's not a lifestyle. It's not something that's just the echo of our constant heart. But whenever we gather together, you know, one of the things that is absolutely primary, first of all, that you and I should be doing, praying. But go sit at church services. Where's prayer structured in? Not just the token prayer at the beginning, not just the token prayer at the end. I'm not trying to discount them, but that's kind of what they can become. We open the service, we close the service, but where's the prayer? It's what we should be doing. I've walked alongside, sadly, well, I've seen it, and I've known pastors who, who've experienced it, and you can read it in tons of books. But our churches, we have forgotten the primacy and the importance of prayer. It's so integral to, whatever believer, to what believers should be doing whenever we gather. I tend to think of, as I'm thinking through Sunday morning, my default is, Okay, what's the sermon passage going to be? What songs are we going to sing? Who's going to be there? Like, where's the prayer in my consideration of I get to go be with other believers who love the Lord and we desperately need the Lord and we're going to get to come together and pray. Like, that's just not, it's not who we are typically in our church culture. But there used to be things called prayer meetings. I would love prayer meetings. I would love a big tent revival. I'm pretty old fashioned. Like Chad said, I should have been born in 1950. Like there are so many things from the past that I enjoy, but I really like my modern convenience is a nice air conditioner right now. But there were prayer meetings. And what happened over the years is prayer meetings dwindled. And I would hear pastors say, people just don't care about prayer anymore. Basically it came down to this. You give them a program and they'll show up. You give them the Sunday service and they're there. You give them a prayer meeting and they will be absent or you'll have just about five or six people. And I saw this at Moralton. 
wasn't wasn't even judgment on people. We just lost the importance of like, this is something that we get the joy of doing together with other believers. First of all, of utmost importance, Paul says you should pray. This is why actually we intentionally block out time from the beginning of cross life. We want to be a people who pray. And so we've intentionally scheduled that in. And you might think, well, isn't that programmatic? It sure is, because I know the default of our hearts is to squeeze it out. We're running short on time. What can we compromise? Well, let's just, let's get, you know, somebody else to pray. They're going to pray shorter. Or let's kind of shorten our prayer time right here. But what typically gets squeezed out of a service is prayer. But you read the Bible and you see that they were constantly praying. Whenever the believers would come together, they prayed, they worshiped, they shared the word. But we tend to squeeze it out. So we're very intentional at Cross Life of being mindful that we will pray. And so we always... Try to just have it in there as an intentional time. And we do it in different ways, but it's important for us for two reasons. You just need to know. Number one, because what we're praying requires it to look and function differently. We do it differently, right? It's good for men to pray together. It's good for women to pray together. It's good for couples to pray together. It's good for our kids to be in here to see that mom and dad and men and women of of different generations love to pray with one another. Because if you can think through kids, they are picking up and absorbing everything that they see in the tenor of our lives. You can teach them all the doctrine you want, but they're watching and they're going to take that. And so whenever they're in here with us for worship and for prayer, they're seeing, oh, dad really does love the Lord. And like, he doesn't just tell us to sing like he's singing and he can't sing. I can hear him, but like he's singing and he's praying like my dad loves the word. Like whenever the preacher is preaching, like he's right there with him and he's staying like the kids get to see that. We need them to see that. We want them to see that. They're going to remember seeing you pray and you sing far more than you telling them that they should sing and pray. So we do our prayer differently because sometimes we need that. The other one is this. We want to provide the opportunities of church so that we can model it because we want you to see how it can look and sound and function. Let's get real. We don't always know how to pray. We're not always ready to pray. And sometimes... Oftentimes, it's really good to hear somebody else pray so that we can figure out how we're supposed to pray about that. I grow and I am humbled whenever I've had the opportunity to go back here with the men and I get to hear their prayers. And I'm like, oh, that's such a great prayer. That's so mindful of this going on in our church. So we do it in a couple of different ways, but prayer will always be at the heart of what we're doing as cross life. The one non-negotiable thing that we see that, that we've got to hold on to, um, the, the first of all, because I know and I knew we were going to have guests in here, and so you might be going back to your churches or you might be trying other churches, which I think, is, you know, whatever, wherever it is you go, just watch this. If prayer is not a visible and essential component of their worship, then tread carefully. We're at an age in our church cultures where if you have the right place, the right personality, the right programs, then you don't have to have prayer at all for the spirit to move. You need to see prayer because what prayer acknowledges is that we can't do this and we desperately need him and we want to honor him and worship him. That's why prayer is so important. Biblically speaking, y'all, Prayer is an important component of corporate worship. According to Paul, it's not just biblical. It's of utmost importance that when the saints come together, there's prayer. It should be a regular act when we gather. We also see this in Matthew 21. You don't have to turn there. You're going to know it as soon as I begin. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them in verse 13, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. It's also told to us in Mark eleven seventeen and Luke 19. I'm afraid, though. I'm afraid that we read Matthew 21. 12 and 13, Mark eleven seventeen, and Luke nineteen forty six, And I'm afraid that we only take away half of what he was correcting. We tend to focus on casting out the money changers and, and the den of robbers and thieves. We're, we, we preach and we think on that one. We only take half of the corrective. We focus on the temple being a place of commerce and how we shouldn't let it become that. But that is only half of it. The rest of it is this. The temple, the church, should be a house of prayer. 
That's what God said in Isaiah. My house will be a house of prayer. Man corrupted, and Jesus corrected, but man corrupted what God had intended. And if we're not careful today, y'all, we will do the exact same thing. I do have a very real concern. I'm going to share my heart with you real quick. I do have a very real concern, a real urgency for the church in general these days. I'm not talking about one church over here on this side of town, one on this side. I'm saying that whenever we take the collective American church, these are some of my concerns. And if you've walked with me long enough, you're like, yep, that is. Yep, I see that because it's something that I tend to talk about a whole lot. But there is coming a day whenever there will be a great falling away and men and women will not listen to sound teaching. And I think that we are living in that. There is this slow slipping. Well, there's pretty radical slipping going on, but there's this slippage that's been going on. So here are some of my concerns. I fear that the pulpit has lost its holiness and its authority. I fear that the church has compromised her identity. I fear that the worship has become a performance. I fear, stick with me, that evangelism has just become a program for some. I fear that discipleship has become neglected. And I fear that prayer has become an option. And last one, I also fear that I may slip into any one of these myself. I need the accountability. I need the reminder, Ricky, you know, today's not a performance. It's just faithfully preaching the word. I need the reminder, so does the worship team, that it's not a performance. It's genuinely coming and honoring the God who called us. We need the reminder, church, of who we are and whose we are, that we are the bride of Christ, that we are the body with one another, that we should strive for purity because one day we will see Him face to face. We need to remember that the pulpit should be held in high regard and that pastors should be known not for their skill sets but for the character that they exhibit and their faithfulness to the Word. We need to remember that we're all called to evangelism and that evangelism sparks discipleship that we're all called to be a part of in some capacity and that prayer is not an option. It's who we are. First of all, of utmost importance, when the saints come together, they should pray. That's the impetus that Paul is driving right there. Are y'all with me? Okay. It is a little soapbox for me. It might be tall. I might have box jumped up onto it. But I did want to share that I... I really think that we would miss this way too quickly if we didn't hammer over and over that we're called to pray. The church must be what it was called to be, and that's a house of prayer. And so Paul says to Timothy, first of all, of utmost importance, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. So we must pray. Why? Number one, it's worshipful. It's, number two, honorable. And number three, it's instructed. When the church gathers, let it pray. Okay, but it never said the word pray. He used four other words. So how should we pray? That's those four words. He says, when you come to, when you do this, there should be supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings. And we live in the Bible Belt in Arkansas and everybody's a Christian. So everybody knows what those mean, right? It's time for our prayers of intercession. Okay. No clue what that even means. There's nothing wrong with you for not knowing what it means. We just don't want to take for granted. So here's what those words mean, right? You can't do them if you don't know what they are. But there are, just so you know, there's about seven words that are commonly translated or used for prayer. Four of them are right here in this verse. So here are four ways that you and I can pray. We pray with supplication. These are requests that we are making known to God. So if you've ever gone and said, Lord, you know that this is, this is something on my heart or this is what's going on, that's a prayer of supplication. Okay? It's a, it's a request. Some translations will say request. Make your request known to God. But we direct them to God because we know truly if we're, if we're properly thinking that only God can actually meet the needs that we truly have. We like to think we did it. We like to think we proved ourselves and therefore we earned it. We go to Him because we know we need Him. The word there, prayers, whenever He says, I pray that supplications... Prayers, intercession. He's using a common word there. And the idea of it is the sacredness of meeting with a holy God. Like it's, it's what we tend to think of whenever we say, let's pray. You tend to think of, and we're going to get to the posture of our prayers later. But we tend to think of, oh, this is prayer. I'm talking to God. Like it's that general idea. You and I, by the way, should be in a state of constant prayer. 
It does not mean that I'm walking through the hallways at Union every day going, oh, Lord, just how, oh, thank you, blessings for those lockers. And I love these. Like, I'm not always, the idea of that being ready in prayer, constant in prayer, is that your heart is always in a prayerful mode. So that let's just say, Andy said, hey, man, this is going on and I need prayer. I'm ready. Or as I'm going throughout, y'all, yesterday I was mowing and it was hot. Like, I mean, it was really, really hot in the middle of the day. And I start mowing. I get about halfway through and I hear the trees before I feel the wind. And I'm like, Lord, this is, look what you do. And I feel like in my heart, God was like, look what I'm doing. And so I look up and they're like, there's dark clouds. And then I'm like, what are you doing? So then I mow faster. <laughs> but it was, it's just that idea of just always being mindful that all that we have and all that we do is contingent upon who He is. He does delight in blessing and honoring His children. Do you not, dads? Do you not, moms? It's good to ask His request. He delights in it. So, so that idea that we're in that state of prayer, that's what that means. Intercessions. These are appeals for divine action on the behalf of somebody else. Fancy way of saying when you pray for somebody else, that's an intercessory prayer. That's an intercession. So if I were to pray for Andy or Andy were to pray for me, that's an intercession. I thought this was really cool. Whenever you get back to the language, the original word, the basic meaning, listen to this, was to draw near to a person and converse confidently with him. That's what intercession means. It's to draw close to a person and to converse confidently with him. Whenever we pray in intercession, we draw close confidently to God on behalf of somebody else. Is that not beautiful? Hebrews says that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because of the blood of Christ. Whenever Matt's praying for me, he can pray in confidence as he speaks to his God, who is my God, because he is confident in who he is. Thanksgivings. This one's pretty straight up. You're giving thanks. Not only thanks for what he's done and for the prayers he's answered, but y'all get this. Prayers for I mean, thanksgiving for who He is and what He's done in His grace. You and I are so incredibly blessed. Your worst day is an incredible blessing from the Lord. So many things can go wrong, and yet you see the blessing in it because He's given us all things. So He says four things. Let there be requests that we make known. Let's pray to Him. Let's intercede for one another. and Let's give thanks for who He is. Why? It edifies us. It reminds me that I am contingent upon God. It's for the health of the church that we pray in this way, that it's not all about us and it's not all for us, and it's for His glory. And you might be thinking, but I stink at prayer. I don't even know how to pray. Like, you tell me to pray for you, Ricky, I don't even know how to pray. Or you tell me that here's a situation, and that's pretty heavy, and I don't know how to pray. Romans 8.26 is why I pray the way that I pray. Just so you know. Romans 8.26. You should jot it down or find it real quick. This will give you, I hope, the confidence you need. Romans 8.26 says this, In the same way, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how we ought to pray. See? The Bible takes care of it for you. You don't know how. For we do not know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. Y'all, the heart of our prayers is the worshipful act, not the precision of them. The fact that we will go to God and we will say, Lord, I just lift up. Andy's going to be my example this week. You're off the hook. Okay, but Lord, I just lift up Andy because I don't, I've even said, and you'll hear me pray this way, Lord, I don't even know how to pray for that. But your Spirit is within me. It is... It's the fact that we are willing to pray. It's that heart, that humility. God will honor that. He will intercede with words too deep for, too deep for groanings because you and I don't really know how we ought to pray. We just don't. And that's freeing that the Bible already tells you. You don't really get it. You don't know how, but you're willing, and that's what I want. All right. What should we pray for? I'm sorry, who should we pray for? All right, here we go. Number one, everyone. You should be praying for all people. It says for all people. Verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions, 
Oh my. Okay, but for all people, Ricky, what does it mean by all people? Like, what's like the Greek word that we really need there? Like, how do you translate that? All people. You and I should be praying for all people. Everyone. Your family, your friends, your enemies, your strangers, your fellow church members, your fellow non-church members, saints everywhere, your colleagues, people on street corners, people in the Walmart aisles, everyone. You pass somebody at a gas station, you feel like you're supposed to pray for them, you pray for them. You find somebody that you don't know if you're ever going to click with them and you hope you never see them again, you know what you should do? You should actually be praying for them. So you and I are supposed to pray for all people. Here's just a challenge for you, and here's, I think, part of the reason why. If you're not praying for them, then who will? Like, put that in your context. Now, I, as an educator, think through that a whole lot. If I'm not praying for my students, for my faculty and staff, if I'm not praying for you, then who is praying for you? What if we all just abdicated our responsibility to pray for all people? Who in the world then is praying for them? And you and I won't always be praying for the same people. I may see Rick Hamrick and be like, and just as I'm leaving today, just say, I'm... Lord, I just, I just lift Rick up to you. I don't even know why, but he's on my heart. Sometimes you get that text from me. Don't know why you're on my heart, so I'm praying for you today. And my prayer usually begins with, Lord, I don't even know how to pray, but you got them there, so this is all you. That's what we're called to do. Pray for all people. Number two, we are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. You and I, church, you and I are called to pray for those kings who are over us. We're not, we're not out of the, we're not free here. You might say we don't have kings, so we do. We have, we have presidents and vice presidents and senators and representatives. We have governors and mayors. You have a boss that we're like, it, it's anyone who's in that authority. But this is that idea of this high authority over us. And Paul says, you are supposed to, you and I are supposed to lift up supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. They are to be made for everyone and also for kings and all who are in high positions. I don't want to. Like, <laughs> that's what my flesh says sometimes is I don't, I don't want to. Like I don't even know how to pray for them. Like that's a responsibility. Like that's a, that's a level that that I don't even know, and, and I don't even agree with the direction of, of this particular thing right now. Like, so I'm going to pray selfishly in this way, maybe, or, or I like this, so I'm going to pray. Like, I don't know how to wrestle with all that, to be quite honest. And yet, I don't get to just back out of it. We're going to get to why here in just a second, but you and I are supposed to pray. And you and I are living in a very broken, sin-riddled Godless, chaotic world, and we are supposed to pray for those kings and authorities over us. It's not an option. It's an obligation. It's in Scripture. So, you have to keep in mind who was in charge at this time whenever Paul's writing this. Emperor Nero. If you haven't heard about Nero, footnote, summary, he was a wicked vile man who hated Christians. In fact, it's at his hand, tradition says, that Peter was crucified upside down and Paul was beheaded. The same Paul who was saying, pray for those kings who are over us. Paul knew who Nero was. He knew who the authorities were. And yet he willingly and, and by, through the Spirit said, we should be praying for them. I don't know if my faith would have been that deep. Nor probably was Paul's. Remember, no man wrote any prophecy of his own will, but only as he was moved by the Spirit. That Scripture is God-breathed. So this is Paul writing through the strength of the Spirit. And he's writing under Nero. He's writing from imprisonment. And he's writing about the church. And he says that these prayers should be made for all people, but especially for the kings and for those in high authority. You and I should be praying for those who are in authority over us. We should be, like in all of our breakout times, whenever we pray in different ways, you know what we haven't done a really great job of? Every now and then we'll do it. We haven't been praying for our kings and those who are in authority over us in different levels. And we should be. I'm guilty of that. Here is a biblical principle that you and I need to hold on to. Even when we cannot respect the men or women in authority, we must respect their offices and pray for them. We see that all throughout Scripture. In my flesh, I don't like that. I'm just telling you my sinful bent is 
I don't agree. I don't like it. I'm not going to honor. I'm not going to respect. But biblically, we see that we are supposed to respect their offices and pray for them. If we're not praying for them, then who is? I want to give you a couple of couple of passages. And I'm these are passages where I'm like, Lord, right now, like in our time, in our culture, like in our church, you want me like these are the passages? Yes, these are. So I want to give you some passages that will create, I think, a necessary tension for us. Romans 13, 1 through 5. This is why we pray for the kings and authorities, but it's also why we must respect their offices. In Romans 13, 1 through 5, it says, Paul writing to the Roman church, let every person, every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. There's a great mystery there. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Again, great mystery in where we are. But it goes on. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he... I'm sorry, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all that is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And then it goes on in 1 Peter. So Paul wrote Romans, Peter wrote Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, verses 13 through 20, Peter's writing to believers and he says, Be subject. Remember, Peter's, Peter's under Nero. Be subject for the Lord's sake. That's what you should underline. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. Verse 15, this is the will of God, that by doing good, personally, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Then he goes on in verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, verse 17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And he lived under Nero, who would crucify him upside down, who hated Christianity and gained his popularity by persecuting them. And he says, honor the emperor. And Paul says, Paul says, let every person be subject to governing authorities. Yeah, I share those, not to say, here's how you and I are supposed to live, but to create a tension for us. I'm trying to create this tension that God put on my heart as I'm going through here, as we're supposed to pray for those in authority. We need this tension right now in a very Christless world. This world is horribly broken. It's riddled with the corruption of sin, and yet God's Word does not give us the excuse of outright rebellion. In your submission to authority, though, church, and I have this written out so that I can make sure I don't misstep. In your submission to authority, in honoring the emperor, in honoring the kings, and, and in praying for them, in our submission to authority, there should be honor for the positions and roles, and we should follow them humbly and with honor. But the limit for us is whenever it violates our Christian conscience, duties, and obligations. We cannot support abortion because that goes directly against our Christian conscience, duty, and obligation. We cannot respect the, these laws that if they go against who we are as Christians, we cannot, we cannot embrace that. So this limit for us is whenever it violates our Christian conscience and duty and obligations, not necessarily our individual rights, though I love my individual rights. Because here's what God put on my heart. Jesus stepped into this darkness so that he might redeem it. He placed himself under the authority of Pilate and Herod and gave himself into the hands of murderous men and priests. 
Our God knows what it means to endure under corruption and to do so to the glory of God. He laid aside every personal right of His except His allegiance to God, even to the point of shedding His own blood for us. Man. We must greatly consider how Christ and the apostles lived under their governing authorities. It wasn't perfect. They knew it wasn't going to be perfect. Jesus even said, in this world you have many, many troubles, but take heart, I've overcome the world. It's in these trials that we must do what's right and put to silence the foolish um, arrogance against us. I don't know how to do that, y'all. I just know how to, to wake up and humbly say, God, I don't, I don't get it, but I, I'm going to pray for them. Now, there's a reason we pray, okay? So let's keep on moving. We're almost through here. Why should we pray for those kings and those in high position? You and I need this. It's for our good. Look at this. It's, he says we should pray for them for our good. It says, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You and I pray for them so that we can live a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We pray for them. We pray for their souls. We pray for their salvation, for their discernment, for their decisions, for their governance, for their authority, so that they will make decisions that honor God and therefore make our lives easier. That's, that's wonderful. Like we're praying for them so that we can have a better life. I just kind of go on autopilot, to be quite honest. I, I tend to judge their decisions instead of praying for their decisions. I tend to, to like deal with the, the outworking of, of their decisions instead of praying that they will have discernment as they're getting ready to make these. And then having to figure out how to walk rightly and humbly and honorably in these while still maintaining a good Christian conscience. But y'all, the most effective way of affecting the kings and those in positions of high authority is prayer and prayer to this end so that we may live a quiet and peaceful life. If you get into those words, quiet, it deals, the word for quiet deals with all the circumstances around us. And the word for, um, I'm sorry, peaceful is all the circumstances around and the quiet is actually an internal working so that there's a quietness about us because of how they are governing because the saints are praying for them. I'm going to go back to if we're not praying for them, then who is? But this is what we're called to do. Proverbs says, in case you want to be cynical like I, I tend to be, well, we can pray, but they're going to just do whatever they want. Oh, Proverbs says that the king's heart is like water in God's hands. He turns it wherever he wills. God has always, you read scripture, he has always operated in conjunction with the prayers of his people. Not that the prayers ever change his mind. He just delights in honoring those prayers. So the, king, the king's heart is like water in God's hand. God turns it wherever he wants. And so as we pray, we get to see and we get to glory in the fact that this is what God does with the king's heart as we pray as his people. Puts all of our trust in God because we're basically saying, God, we can do absolutely nothing else about those who are kings and authorities over us except come to you because you can do all things. Okay, it's also for our God. Look at verse 3. Why should you and I pray for all people and pray for kings and authorities? Verse 3, because it's good. It's good. You're supposed to do it. And get this one. If this one doesn't move you, I don't know what will. But it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Do you want to please God? Then pray for everyone. Pray for kings and authorities who are over us. You don't want to please God? Don't do it. But if you want to please God, scripturally speaking, this is what you and I are supposed to do. This is not going to be a best-selling book. I know. Right? This is not a popular passage right here, but I know as I'm looking around the room, I know the hearts of the people to whom I'm speaking. You get it. You know. You know the weight of it. You know the obligation of it. But you and I, we pray for our good so that we can live a peaceful, quiet life. And we pray because this pleases God. It pleases Him that we pray for the kings. Y'all, there is a God in heaven who not only created us to be who not only created us, but who hears us and cares deeply for us. When you pray, He hears it. All right. We get into the heart of prayer. Verses 4 through 7, I'm going to summarize. Um, we're not going to tackle all of them, but here's why God desires that we pray. It says very clearly, He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. This is why you and I pray for all people. It's because God does actually desire that all people would be saved. It's in Isaiah 45, 22. If you want to write that one down. 
God in Isaiah in the Old Testament, this is one passage, he says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. He desires that all the ends of the earth would turn to him. Ezekiel 33:11 says, Say to them, as surely as I live, God speaking, as surely as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I needed to be reminded of that. That a holy God who will execute perfect justice takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn, God says, from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? God actually does really desire that all would turn, that the most wicked and the most vile who's done the most heinous things, that they would turn from their sin and run to him and he will forgive them. Oh, Ricky, that's an unforgivable thing. You don't understand the depth of his love and his forgiveness. To me, it is. To me, it's unpardonable. To him who is full of rich, I'm sorry, who is full of the richness of mercy and grace and who loves us with an infinite love, he can love much deeper and much wider than you and I ever can. He desires that the wicked would repent and confess and be with him, not that they would simply die. Now you read the Old Testament and he will judge wickedness. You read Revelation, he will judge wickedness. There is a coming judgment. That's why we can have some peace right now. He will set all accounts straight. But his desire is not in their death and destruction. His desire is that they would reach repentance. And in case you forgot it, John 3, 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that everyone who believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But listen to verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You know, the heart of our prayers is really that all would be saved. Will all be saved? No. Jesus gave himself, it says very clearly, in verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He desires that all would be saved. His death is deep enough. It's wide enough. It's, it's expansive enough for all people of all time and all territories and all tongues. Like he could reach to the ends. Will all reach salvation? No. Will all live godly lives? No. And does this change God's desire? No. The rejection of the gospel does not change the gospel of God's heart. He still intends that all would reach repentance. But y'all hear me on this. Jesus' substitutionary death and atonement on the cross is full enough to redeem all of existence. But it is only applicable to those who repent and choose to follow Him. The condition of salvation is based on the repentant heart. But all of that's bound up in prayer, which leads us all the way to verse 8, which I love. I desire that in every place, see, we're right here. Happy Father's Day. We're talking about all this, pulling it all together. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. If I said right now, let's pray across the room. It's actually pretty funny. Let's pray. What's going to happen? Heads go down, eyes close, hands come together. Or if you're sitting next to a spouse whom you love that day, then you reach over and you, oh, see, you pat the leg, you put your hand there, or you hold their hands. The Baptist posture of prayer is this, right? If I were to say, let's pray, do you know that's actually nowhere in the Bible? Clasp your hands, bow your head, and close your eyes, let's pray. Whenever I get tongue-tied, then I have people bowing their eyes, closing their heads, and then praying or something like that. And Chas will sometimes have to catch me after a shot. He kind of got that one flipped up there. Y'all, the, he says, I desire that in every place the men should pray. And he tells us how lifting holy hands without quarreling or, or without anger or quarreling. It's this, it's this idea of praying like this or praying like this. It's not about the posture. It's just an example. It's not about the posture of the hands or the body. It's about the posture of the heart. Like this is a, like it's just a saying right there. In fact, I read not too long ago that in Israel, the men would pray with their eyes open and their hands either outstretched or lifted up. So, so that the best I can reason is they are looking at the object of their affection. They're fixing their attention. And so it's okay to pray with your eyes open while you're driving. Don't pray with your eyes closed while you're driving. But it's okay to pray with your eyes open. It's okay to pray with your, your head bowed. It's okay to, to, to put your hands together. It's okay to kneel. It's okay to stand. It's okay to be in quiet. It's okay to be with people. Like it tells us all throughout Scripture, if you want to know, 
um, in 1 Kings 8.22, they have outstretched hands. In Daniel 6.10, he kneels. In Luke 18, they are standing. In 2 Samuel 7.18, it refers to sitting. In Genesis 24.26, we have the bowing of the heads. In John 17.1, they have the lifting of the eyes. In Genesis 17.3, they fall to the ground. The important thing, Wearsby says, is not the posture of the body, but the posture of the heart. And that's the idea of this lifting of holy hands. It's this idea, as I break down holy hands and anger and quarreling, it's this idea that we are coming to a holy God and we desperately need Him. And the men should be doing this. Should the women be doing it also? Absolutely. But you know who's not off the hook? The men. For sure. Don't we have women praying our service? Absolutely we do. Because they are redeemed of the Lord. They are daughters and sisters in Christ. Absolutely. But men, you should be praying, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. It was customary for the Jewish men to pray with their arms extended, their eyes open. That's what, that's what Paul was saying. If we contextualize it, then I would say it is good for men to, to pray, bowing their heads, closing their eyes, and speaking out over others. But they should be lifting their voices in prayer. That's kind of the idea. Are you with me? There should be this idea of humility when we pray, not authority. Mark 7, 6. is a warning for us. So Jesus says, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And that's what, that's what Paul's writing about. Honor him not simply with your lips, but in your hearts. Holy hands and a holy life. Holy hands means a holy life. That's, what the, that's the context of it. Y'all, we cannot live in sin and expect God to accept our prayers. We cannot live in intentional sin and expect God to hear our prayers. Intentionally indulging in sin does deafen God to our prayers. I know that He's merciful and gracious and kind and patient. Praise God. But He is holy and just. And Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. The psalmist knew it. Well, Ricky, we, we all sin. We do. What's the stature of your heart? What's the posture of your heart? Are you repentant of it? Do you hate that sin? The change for the sinner who becomes a saint is our hatred of sin. doesn't mean that we quit practicing sin. We don't seek to indulge it. We don't live in it. Uh, the change is that though there's sin always around us, we hate that sin and we're constantly moving further and further away from it. It's not that we quit sinning. It's that we hate the sin that we commit. Our hearts rather should be what we see in Psalm 26. Here's what we should be like. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. That's a dangerous prayer. Lord, examine me and try me. Test my mind and my heart. Your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence and go about and will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with the men of bloodshed in whose hands is a wicked scheme and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level place in the congregations. I shall bless the Lord. That's a psalm of holy hands. It's saying, wash me, redeem me. I know I've messed up, but my heart is for you. Read Psalm 26 sometime. Last part, the unity. The last part says that we should do all this without anger or quarreling. And I will say what I've said before. You and I would be foolish to believe that as we gather here, Satan is not attacking us. He absolutely is. It's foolish for us to believe that, that, that Satan would not try to attack a gathering of the saints. And we see it in many different ways. He hates the gathering of the saints. He hates the worship of God. He hates the unity of believers. So therefore, you and I must guard our hearts against this. That's kind of the idea there. Why? Because there must be unity. And where there is anger and where there is disunity, Satan will have a filled day. Where there is disunity and anger, there is a lack of peace for which Christ died. 
Yes, He died to make peace between God and man so that we can have peace with Him, but He also died so that we can have peace one with another. So there's neither slave nor Scythian, male nor female, like Jew or Greek, but that there would be peace among all. And whenever we allow anger and disunity to break that, then we allow disunity that totally negates the peace for which Christ died also. Y'all with me on that one? Another one meddles a little bit more. Okay. All right. Hebrews 12.15 also says this. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And this is the danger. By it many become defiled. Y'all, where there is broken unity, there will be hindered worship and prayers. It's just the truth of it. Where there is bitterness, there will be defilement. Therefore, whenever the men pray, the men are to pray, or we are to pray. He says, with holy hands lifted up without angering or dispute. The idea is simply this, that whenever we pray, that we are humble before our Lord and we hold nothing against our neighbors or against anyone else. We live a holy life, striving to live a holy life is how I should say it. But we live a holy life and we hold nothing against anyone else. We genuinely, authentically pray for all people and for the kings who are in authority. And we back all the way up. Why? Because prayer for these things is of utmost importance. Why? Because it leads to the salvation of many, which is God's desire. And it's good for us and it's pleasing to God. When we gather cross life, there should be prayer. Prayers for various kinds of various kinds and all people, kings and rulers, and all this done because we desire to live a quiet, godly life that's not selfish and that's biblically good. And because we know that it pleases God. Y'all, we must warm our spirits at the heart of God who desires that all would be saved, including you and me. You and I, Christians, are here because He desired that all would be saved. Because His gospel was for all people. We're not our own. We're His. But we weren't before. We're going to go from this place. And I pray that whenever we go, we live a life of worship. And I pray that whenever we come... We live a life of prayer as well, that we will see prayer in the life of not only this church. Oh, I got so excited. We're going to be worshiping with another church. If you don't know, every fifth Sunday, we go worship with another church or have another church come worship with us because we like the fellowship of the saints. We want to be a part of a kingdom that's bigger than like our own walls. And so what's exciting is I was talking to that pastor and he said, hey, I'm going to be preaching on the holiness of God. We've been moving through Exodus. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. He said, and you're in charge of the prayer time because we like to have time in every service where we pray. And he told me three different ways that they pray. And it just warmed my heart because it's what we're called to do. Let's pray. Lord, what do we do with this? We pray. Lord, convict us of whatever it is that you will convict us of. Lord, teach us to walk in your ways, whatever that looks like. And Lord, teach me how to honor those who are over me. Lord, teach me how to pray for all people and not simply selfishly. But Lord, I want to do these things because it pleases You. Lord, I want to do these things because it's an act of worship. Lord, teach us to pray because we don't know how. But give us the peace that we know we have in You because You are good. You gave Yourself. All we have, Lord, is You. And that's all we need. Everything else is in your hands. Amen.